distribution of cash flow is actually real. Wait a sec. What if I can like layer these over time? What if I can do X number of them per year? They exit at the, what they're supposed to exit at at the end of the whole period. And then I can reinvest all that stuff. And then it keeps on going rinse and repeat over years. It's just a slow wealth plan, man. It's no secret that real estate is one of the best investment vehicles out there. But how can we determine which strategies will best align with our financial ambitions? Well, you've come to the right spot. Whether you're an active real estate entrepreneur, a passive investor, or looking to get into real estate investing, our goal is to provide investors with insights and strategies for building our portfolios all while protecting our capital. I'm Daniel Nichols, and this is the Two Smart Assets Real Estate Investing Podcast. Welcome back to the show. I'm your host, Daniel Nichols, accompanied by our guest for the week, Spencer Hillegoss. And today we are the Two Smart Assets. For those not yet familiar with Spencer, he is the CEO and co-founder of Madison Investing, a real estate investment firm specializing in real estate syndications. As a passive investor and active syndicator, he understands the unique challenges that busy professionals face when starting out on their real estate investing journey. Spencer's mission is to arm investors with the know-how. They need to make confident investment decisions tailored to their individual life goals. Spencer, my man, it's great to see you. Welcome to the show. Yeah, Daniel, thank you so much. I mean, best title for a show that I have probably ever seen in this space. I'm sure you're not the first person to say that, but really excited to be here. Thank you. Yeah, man. Thank you for saying that. Appreciate that. You know, uh, actually, you know, I've heard you on another uh, ton of other shows. Uh, I feel like I kind of know you just from that or whatever, but, you know, we like to kick this show off by hearing more about you, man. So tell us more about your background, your story, and the path you took to get to where you are today. Yeah, you know, and I'll try to keep this brief because it's, it's been quite a journey to go through. Um, so I live currently in the Bay Area, California. Some folks call that Silicon Valley. Um, I did spend most of my 13-year uh, W-2 career uh, in tech companies, and that's kind of the local industry, right? Uh, I'm not in that career anymore. Back in 2019, about five months before COVID, you know, made it part of all of our daily lives, um, I quit. I, I quote unquote retired from my tech career uh, in all these leadership jobs and something I'd worked so hard for for so many years, Daniel. And now I wake up every day and kind of pinch myself because, of course, I still have responsibilities and I'm still a dad with two young kids that like to wake up way too early and stuff and, and obligations as a very happy husband um, to a hardworking spouse. But I would say, I wake up every day and serve Madison Investing, uh, which is our investing group and fellow passive investors who are just trying to go through the same process that Jennifer and I um, went through when we first started investing passively as LPs or limited partners. And so that's the now um, whirlwind quick callback, I think, to my early life is I did grow up in a real estate household. Uh, my dad was a broker for 30 years. And so I, I guess I got into real estate at about six years old. Um, he had me doing jobs, you know, as early as maybe a teenager, cleaning out old fridges at rentals he was trying to deal with, uh, like working open houses and nice homes, you know, like all this stuff that really scared me away from real estate, frankly, because it's not cool to tell your friends that you work at a real estate company <laughs> in the Bay Area. Um, stupid reason to not want to do it, of course. Um, but that's what scared me into tech companies. And, and I ended up in a leadership career of all things, you know, and I think that that operations focus, you know, eventually the more of a sales focus, growing and scaling teams was not what the kid who used to play in punk rock and metal bands, hence all the tattoos. Like, that's not what I saw for myself initially. I, I used to find finance quite boring back in the day. And now I literally am like, we were just chatting about running before we hit record today, Daniel. 
I listen to finance podcasts while I'm training for a half marathon. It's it, I don't know who if I could go back in time and talk to that kid who didn't care about finance now, I mean, I would probably sit there and say, man, this current guy sure is lame and boring. But of course, this is the path to prosperity as as an adult, you know, and as a, as a father, as a husband who's trying to go out and not just take care of my family, but also try to also educate others and bring them along and watch them thrive, which is really what fills my cup these days. So um, anyways, that was more than you wanted. No, that was perfect. And I, I think you're absolutely right too. And it speaks to the fact that, you know, I think a lot of, you know, you're talking about uh, serving passive investors. There's a lot of people out there who don't know about this type of investing, you know, passive real estate syndication investing. I think, you know, if you go in and talk to a lot of people, they'll just look at you with a blank stare. I've never heard of that, you know, something like that. So I think you going out and educating people about that topic is fantastic because as, you know, we talked about before the show, that's kind of, you know, our, you know, the way we like to invest, right? What we found to be kind of our niche or whatever is pretty spectacular. So I I want to ask a question. One question. You said you know you were a LP on the LP side doing passive investments, um, and then now obviously you're an active syndicator. Um, let me ask you a question. So if you were to go back and do it again, this mm. you know this the whole investing thing, would you still have invested passively first? And I asked this of a, num- a number of people I talked to, but would you have still have invested passively first before going into the active side, or would you consider just going straight into the active? Gosh, I think this is probably the most underserved, one of the most underserved top three topics in the real broader real estate investing community, Danny. I mean, I, I really mean that because you see so many folks jumping in actively before they've really thought through it and good on them for taking action because sure. that's where the majority of folks get stuck. But if I look at my career, the thing that you and I have in common, and I was, I'm, I'm so excited to hear you make this comment before we hit record today, which was that you're in a W-2 career and you said something along the lines of, you know, that you are not in a rush. I mean, you're in a established career, you sound like you enjoy it in some levels. And frankly, I did too. And that is something you don't hear that often. I think it's almost like cool or required, but like an unwritten rule in the real estate investing community, like you kind of have to go and talk trash about your W2 career. (laughs) Like, right? And right, absolutely. I I I have a hard time relating um because I had sure brute there were brutally hard moments. It's it's not like a I was not handed a job. I was not handed the responsibility to lead more than 200 people at the ripe age of 26 when I was way in over my head. And I was like trying to learn how to do this at, you know, global companies like Intuit. I was not ready for the moments when I had to go and join early stage, seed stage, A series stage companies for fintech and build processes from nothing when people were relying on me. And, you know, that's those were hard kicks to the teeth moments. Man. But I got to say, I cherish the people that I worked with and I cherish the relationships. I, I mean, I, I love coaching people, you know, I, all, all those things I look back at and I, and I bring up all that soapbox because it's context for answering your real question, which is that I absolutely would have gone LP and passively invested earlier. And I, I frankly, I wish I had done it. I mean, you hear this all the time. You know, I, I wish I had done this a decade earlier. I was sitting there in Denver, Colorado in around 2008, 2009. And, you know, Jennifer and I lived out in Colorado for maybe about a decade total between where we met at school in Boulder and then lived there for many years. And I bring that up because we all know 2008 was not a very fun time for people who were in the market before it got to 2008. I was sitting there in the 2009 time and I look back and I'm like, I bought zero real estate. (laughs) (laughs) Just, you know, I, I don't live with regret. I strive not to. 
And I'm a human, so anyone says they don't have them is, is lying or you know, they're, they're lacking self-awareness. But if I had to say that there was a regret financially, it would be buying nothing in that time. And I had to go rent the, the coolest apartment downtown, right? And uh, just blow that, that capital without any kids, any major responsibilities. And so I would say that I would start as an LP for sure. Um, even if I was younger, the, the number one move I would have done even before that too, was I would have house hacked as it's popularized now. I, I would have grabbed a buddy um, and done it if necessary, and then rented out one of the units in a multi. You know, I would have done those things way earlier because I really believe, and sorry for the diatribe, I think this is just like a helpful framework. Yeah. There's like two engines to how I see someone building a wealthy, prosperous life. And this is my own brain kind of trying to put a bow, put a bow around it. It sounds really simple, but it's like, number one engine, you need a capital engine. You got to get a way to find investable money. And that's, for some people, that's a hustle, side hustle that needs to get them a bigger paycheck outside their day job. For other people, that's just their day job. And I had the job and I was dumping money into my 401k that we were so proud to max out. Jennifer Morimoto, my co-founder and you know, COO and my wife, we had our separate careers all together. She was thriving as a marketing leader, e-commerce leader. I was kind of thriving as an operations sales leader. And we were dumping money into 401ks and pension plans and celebrating that. And in, and in hindsight, man, I would have rerouted some of that stuff. I, I would have put that into money that's usable now with cash flow now, not the money that's assumed to be at a lower taxable bracket for us, which is also assuming we're going to be poorer when we're when we're older. And, and so I think that there, there's the assumptions baked in that are just flat out wrong. And so in hindsight, that was a really long-winded answer to your question, but I think the personal stories I always found more helpful. And I also think that folks who want to go active should really, really sit down and ask themselves, what do they see in the day of an active investor that gets them excited? Because if they can't spell that out, they're about to make a very, very uninformed decision that could not lead to the outcomes they want. Well, man, I got to be honest with you, there's a lot I want to talk about, but I want to hit on that last point that you mentioned. Uh, and you know, I think for for a lot of people who are looking to take on a more maybe active role in real estate investing, I think a, a common mistake is discounting the importance of both, number one, the skills you may have already accumulated at your job or whatever, right? And then number two, uh, all the stuff you don't know about what you're going to get into, right? So I think uh, those two things are very important. And if you just kind of don't watch either of those, you're going to miss something very big. So as you look back at transitioning into your you know, active real estate uh, syndicator role, how did your skill set as a W-2 employee really help with that trans transition? And in general, what skills do you think were the most critical for building your business? Oh, my goodness. That's a great question. Um, I think this hits on a topic that I, I really... I've tried to be a good resource for folks when they reach out and ask, like, can I, should I make in reference to making the transition to sure. leave their, their day job? And I went through and I, I was originally going to sign up for a personal coach, like a one-on-one -on -one coaching relationship. You and I both know there's many, many solid coaching programs out there. And one of the flavors you can find is an individual one-to-one -one mentoring program. Those have a pretty steep price tag typically. For, for the reputable ones, you've got maybe 30,000, 50,000, up to six figures and beyond for the really high-end ones. And sure. I spoke to, I think, seven different individual coaches that I had made on a curated list. And I bring that up because I looked at the curriculum in the first three to six months on some of these programs. I talked to the, to the, to the coach and I went through it and I was like, you know what? A lot of these programs hit on stuff that I consider to be vital 
But the problem is I've already covered a lot of this stuff really thoroughly in my W2 career, because oftentimes it hits on things such as, do you know how to set goals clearly? Do you know how to go and execute and check in against those goals as you make progress? How comfortable are you putting together a business plan? Uh, how well do you go out and build relationships with prospective strategic partners? How do you go out and basically put together agreements? And so a lot of these things, for at least for me, I didn't feel like I knew how to plug and play paint by number style drop into as a real estate investor. And I had all the answers. I still don't have them now. I have many more, but like, like anything else, the more you learn, the more questions you should be getting sure. if you're paying attention to anything. Right. And right. so um, I just think that those skills very much were applicable. I also had a unique advantage layup uh, where I was working in my W2 job at a, at the biggest fix and flip hard money lender in the country at the time. So okay. Uh, we were doing 600 transactions a month on single family flips. And so I was blessed to be leading teams of people who actually were frontline, either doing loan origination or underwriting deals or doing appraisals. So I, I in all the ends of those origination steps, and they were doing side hustles on the side and the company was okay with that. Wow. That's just a rare moment. And so I got to kind of see all those aspects granted on a smaller scale. I know that you started off kind of on the single family side as well, Daniel, as you mentioned, but yep. it's, it's a helpful lens, you know, before you switch over to the commercial stuff. So, so all, that was kind of an added uh, accelerant, if you want to call it that, to what, what helped me make that transition. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, like you said, it, you having those skills and you recognize you had those skills, you know, when you're looking for coaches, like, no, you know, I currently, you know, have that. I'm pretty comfortable with that, you know, and I think being able to, if you're somebody who's going to go into an active business or build a business or whatever, being able to identify, or even just an investor, but being able to identify strengths, weaknesses, what you know, what you don't know, maybe one of the most important things you can do beforehand. Right. And so I think that right. that goes, I mean, just to your point. So I love that you brought that up. Um, okay. So I kind of want to keep in the W2 space here just for a second. So, um, yeah. you know, I was having a conversation with a colleague about basically advancing in the workplace, you know, climbing the W2 ladder. Right. And, you know, they're asking my opinion on the matter. And I told them that basically, you know, before you start doing any of that, you know, climbing this ladder, I mean, you can do whatever you want, but you need to make sure you're, you're climbing the right ladder, right? Like that ladder is leaning against the right wall. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. and so, and I know we hear that all the time. So, um, and I've heard you some, uh, mention something like this on other shows, actually. And that's the idea of foregoing the corporate ladder, basically the corporate climb to build your own financial moat. So, I mean, personally, I love this idea. I think it's fantastic. I can, from I'm, from what I understand, this is something that I kind of jive with pretty well. But it might be counter counterintuitive to others. So maybe start with describing what you mean by you know financial moat, and then why is this something a W two corporate employee might consider in their path? Oh man, this is such a worthwhile topic, in my opinion, for helping people in a meaningful way. Yeah, you know, so I appreciate you going there, Daniel. It's how do I keep this real concise and packaged for folks? I think first and foremost, th thanks for listening to me ramble on a different podcast. Uh, <laughs> I love it. I love it. Um, I think that the, what does the moat mean? The moat is best told very briefly with a personal analogy or anecdote. You probably heard, you may have heard this shared. It's just a very personal story, probably the most profound one as to what informs how we lead our, our group as well as my family, frankly. Um, when I was growing up, I told you about my dad being a broker, et cetera. At the time, you know, me and my siblings and my mom, um, you know, that whole household was fueled financially by one active income. Mm. And, you know, that would be called, you know, trading time for money. So this concept that everyone, that many, not everyone, but most people 
if they've gotten to listen to a podcast like yours, you know, they've probably at least heard of, if not have already read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, you know, the purple book. And I bring that up because I love that example that sticks with me to this day. Not a perfect book, but this concept is so perfect in explanation, which is that wealth can come in in two ways. It's a pipeline that just flows, or you get the buckets. And the bucket analogy means you got to go back to the well, keep filling it up, keep dumping it on the table. And that's just like basically a metaphor for active work is the bucket, passive income, or some form of passive stream that many of which can be built will come in from the pipeline. So I saw my dad's income as the bucket. And the challenge with that was, unfortunately, many years ago now, I uh, lost my younger brother to cancer. He passed. Uh, my parents got divorced, as is quite common in those scenarios. And then we lost, like I said, a grandparents. And then like, I think two or three months after my brother passed. And then there was another death. It was, it was a rough 10 years. And we kind of called out like the dark decade because around that time, my dad's business really, really shrank in like to the point where we had to significantly downsize our lifestyle as a family. And um, we weren't in dire straits, but like compared to where we were, yeah, it, it was, we felt that, you know, and never quite got back as a family to that same place, unfortunately. Um, so why does that matter to your question? And why does it matter to my family and our business now? It matters because like that broker income, people like to trick themselves into thinking W2 income is more stable than that. It ain't. It's under the control of a company and a boss. And their discretion. So you have multiple layers of this active income coming from one income into the family. So as the person who's helping drive this family, drive this business along with Jennifer, my COO and co-founder and wife, like that's the stuff that tells me we got to go build a moat by having many streams of income, like the pipeline, protecting our family. If you know, God forbid, I get hit by a bus or pick another vehicle analogy or a health issue comes out of the woodwork, right? All these things. And so, uh, yeah, I'll just take a pause on that and just say, that's really what informed me as an event, a profound event in our lives that said, I, I want to make sure that no matter what happens to me, my, my capacity for hard work, whatever, we're good to go. My kids are taken care of. And passive income is one of those ways of doing that. Yeah. I, honestly, I think it's amazing how you know these events in our lives, they really shape us, right? And kind of how we act and what we do and all that stuff. Because you know, I didn't have a, you know, a similar path to what you had, but, you know, in terms of, you know, having that one income, you know, I work in a very volatile job industry. I work in oil and gas, right? So if, if oil takes a dump, you're probably going to lose your job, right? I mean, that's just the name right. of the game. I mean, you're most likely to get hired back in a few months or a year or something, but for the time being, you're probably going to lose your job. And so that happened to me and it was like a smack in the face, you know? I mean, mm. I thought I was somewhat ready. Well, let me tell you something, I was not ready, you know? And so um, you're absolutely right. Having that control, building that moat, that pipeline of cash flow, just different income streams. If you've ever had any sort of adversity in your life when it comes to stuff like that and watching that source of income dry up, it's traumatic, you know, it can be right if you're not ready for it. So, um, you know, I love that you brought that up, man. And so that kind of brings us into like, you know, passive investing and syndications. So, we touched on this a little bit earlier, um, but in terms of you know W two workers, there seems to be like two camps, right? So one camp you have these W two workers who maybe they don't like their job very much, flat out they might hate it, who knows? Um, and they're wanting to get out of their the normal grind, the nine to five, and they want to go do something else actively, right? And then you have this camp, the, this group of folks who they don't mind their job. In fact, they may really like their job, um, a lot of pride in their work they do, and you know that, that's in their blood. I think that's that kind of goes a lot with uh, oil and gas people. Like if you're an oil and gas person, like 
a lot of these guys are oil and gas for life. It's just, I, it's just, yeah, it's just how it works out. So, but in either camp, most W two employees they need to build, you know, outside income streams that aren't earned income from their job, right? And yeah. and like we spoke about before, I think it's funny because when I when I used to talk to my colleagues um, before, most of them had no idea about real estate syndications, don't know anything about it. But you know, after spending some time with me, that's pretty much all I talk about. So of course they know about it now. Yeah, but you know, <laughs> it's all it's time, all over now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But at the time, you know, I'd be lucky one out of ten even knew what the, what I was talking about at all. Most of them didn't, you know. So right. you know I'm kind of curious in your experience, because you talk with a lot of investors and you know you started building your company and all that, and I'm sure a lot of tech guys as well. Um, is this something you found in your experience as well? Just like the lack of knowledge in terms of this type of investing vehicle? And if so, why do you think real estate syndications are so underutilized by busy W2 professionals? Yeah, and, you know, you're spot on in the, in that categorization of uh, a good chunk of our investor group, you know, being Tech people, tech people. Sure. Um, you know that's where my career was, so it only follows logically that that's going to be where our group started. We have hundreds of folks that invest with us now, but they're all over the country. And I think that the thing in common across all these geographies, you know, from West Coast, East Coast, North and South, is that the same percentage applies of folks that don't know anything about these. And I found that fascinating, particularly for the more progressive kind of cutting edge industries, quote unquote, because they really draw it, it, it. Folks at early stage tech companies often believe they're there to change the world. Mm. And so I'm not trying to pick on them a little bit, but maybe I am. <laughs> is that, you know, Silicon Valley largely des deserves its reputation sometimes for thinking that a app that is just an app is going to somehow change the world in a macro way. And all that to say, they usually think that they, they have, they've really canvassed all really, really great investments that are out there, all the ways of building wealth. And they also subscribe to the plan that unfortunately I did too for 13 years as well, Danny, which is that I thought, this is years ago, if I join an early stage tech company, I would get the get out of jail free card or just basically the way that would absolve all of my financial sins prior by joining the next Google or Uber or Facebook or what have you, the big equity exit. So you get early stage company, you join early stage team, you work your butt off, you build this company, and then eventually you're able to go sail off into the sunset with some massive seven or eight figure exit, right? That barely happens to anyone if you look at the percentages. And that never, it didn't happen for me. Maybe there's one company in the mix that I might, might end up having an exit. And so I'll cross my fingers for that, but I'm not banking on that. And so sure. for, for the longest time, I was assuming that was going to happen before I saw the light and, and started investing in these things. So just, I think that context is helpful because that's really the headspace that a lot of folks, at least in the tech world, are coming at it from, is if it were this good, why haven't I heard about it yet? And to that end, real estate is still boring and, and old school to most people. And certainly big apartments, big self-storage facilities. And you know th those are two asset classes that we focus on is self-storage. And I know you and I were chatting about multifamily and self-storage before this. They're the best kind of boring. I mean, the, that, that, that's the, what I look for. I want predictability in a hard asset. And that's what I find. I, and we consistently keep finding it at Madison Investing and we're 36 deals deep, you know? And so I, I, once I walk through it with them, there's two polarizing responses. And when a, one response is, is, holy crap, this is amazing. And I think I'm going to at least do a test investment because that means that, uh, you know, I'll pay more attention when I have skin in the game. 
or it's the person who says, oh, this is way too risky for me. And then they go invest in crypto. <laughs> and and I, I, I also do as well, by the way, but I'll just sure. say that, you know, it's a very small percentage of our portfolio. <laughs> and so um, it's a fascinating response that people will often have to that because ultimately the magic moment for me is, and it probably has been for you as well, Daniel, but I'm curious if yours was any different, is like the moment you get that first direct deposit, and it's coming in on a monthly basis or a quarterly basis. For me, it was a monthly one in the first one I did. It was like, oh, wow, that distribution of cash flow is actually real. Wait a sec. What if I can like layer these over time? What if I can do X number of them per year? They exit at the, what they're supposed to exit at at the end of the whole period. And then I can reinvest all that stuff. And then it keeps on going rinse and repeat over years. It's just a slow wealth plan, man. And that's something that some people are not, it, it makes it too clear. And it almost like, I think it puts onus uh, or responsibility on people to kind of get their, their stuff together. I'll try to say that the PC way. Um, <laughs> it's so effective and clear. It almost like inadvertently compels them to have to rethink their investment strategy oftentimes, which people don't like being wrong. Um, and so when you show them that, that's the one other thing I think that's interesting uh, as a reaction. Because my reaction was, wow, I'm going to go do this. <laughs> <laughs> when, I, when I when I first heard about it, and I was thankful enough to be exposed to it as a passive investor first, I was like, uh, Jennifer, we need to talk because we're going to go and evaluate these. We need we need to figure this out. And then you know, in our household, we had that series of alignments and discussions before we decided to pull the trigger on the first. But for most people, you're still going to have some analysis paralysis. And just like you said, I think it, you know it's getting over that initial hump, right? Because everybody who I've talked to who's made that initial hump, because if you're a passive investor in real estate syndications, you've gone through that you know, before you had to, right? And so I think people who, you know, I've, you know, talked to, uh, made their first investment, they go over that first hump. But just like you said, once you get that, that first direct deposit of that, it's validation, right? Like this works. And if I just keep building this, it might be boring, but it's beautiful, right? Cause I, you know, it's just, it's just one of those things. Uh, this is, this is, this is fantastic. And I think where a lot of people get hung up is the idea of control, right? Uh, but really the yes. truth is, really the truth is, you know, evaluate where you're an expert first and then decide if having control is a good or a bad idea, right? Because, you know, if I don't know anything about, you know, property management or, you know, running an apartment or a self-storage facility, I don't need to be the guy out there doing that. You know, I need to be relying on uh, the professionals who are out there doing it. So I absolutely love your point, man. Um, I got to be honest, Spencer, you know, I got a whole line of questions I could ask you. We could go on a whole nother show, man, but we're, we're getting close to time here. So I want to be respectful of that. But before we get out of here, uh, tell us more about, you know, you, what you got going on and your company. Yeah. And sorry for being so long-winded. You just nope. got me and I got such good questions. I was just going. Um, <laughs> so Madison Investing, Passive Investing Group, um, what we do is a very boutique approach. It just basically means I personally onboard 100% of our members and that folks can't ac actually access our deals until we have that conversation. It's not because I'm trying to be cagey. It's just because none of us left this prior career, this prior life to go build this organization to passively invest unless we are working with people that are viewing this as a true partnership. It's in the name. It's like limited partner that is in the literal name and it's not a customer service desk. We're here as partners. I'm here to be a sounding board, to be a resource. And so if people want to set up a time with me and I'm happy to just literally be a sounding board on their current 
approach, you know, if they want to talk about the deals or the state of the market or what have you. So feel free to reach out um, and just book a time with me. It's right there on our website at madisoninvesting.com. Uh, some some folks sign up and they just uh, get educated for about a six, 12 month period or more before they do their first, but there is, is no fee. Um, what really is required is people are just decent human beings and, um, and, and they can come in and be forthright. And then let's just talk about kind of what are they trying to achieve cash flow growth or, you know, a different plan altogether. Yep. I love that you're going out there and putting that value to, to investors, potential investors, you know, whether they already have a strategy, they're already doing it or they're brand new. So love to hear that, man. Cause that's, that's a lot of value right there. Actually having somebody who to talk to and answer questions. Cause that's not always the easiest for people to reach out and actually get those answers. So that, that is awesome. Everybody go check out, uh, Spencer's company, uh, have a call with him, man. He's going to tell you some good stuff. Um, Spencer, great conversation, man. Really appreciate you taking the time to speak with me today. Yeah. Thank you, Danny. Yes. Yeah, such killer questions. I really appreciate you feeling it and let me go off on some tangents. Nah, dude, it was awesome. Like I said, we're going to have to get you back on the show, man. I got a whole nother line of questions. So maybe here in a few months, we'll get you back on so we can get those answered. Let's do it. Awesome. Thanks, man. Hey, real quick, before we get out of here, do me a huge favor and leave a rating and review for the podcast. We're always looking to bring you guys the best insights and strategies for building our real estate portfolios and your ratings and reviews really help with getting top guest speakers that are the best in the real estate investing business. I promise this will only take you a few seconds and I'd really appreciate it. Thanks for being awesome, guys. Cheers.